Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And so, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22, how it starts off, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, very famous prayer in, in the synagogue. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. So in these verses, we see the Lord Jesus Christ crying out to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when he cried out those words, we read, we understand God was far from him, far from him. God was silent. There was no answer. There was no answer. That's what he said. Now, why was God far from him when he cried out to him? Why did God not answer him when he cried from his heart? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? It was because of what was happening to him. What was happening to him is described for us beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a description of a process with a purpose. A process with a purpose. The verse goes like this. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That is the process. The process, again, is he hath made him, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now the next part of the verse describes the purpose, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, there's the process and the purpose. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, the purpose that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's an exact description of what we find in Isaiah 53, 11. Exactly the same thing. But it's put a little bit different way, and here's how it's put in Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. See? Again, process, purpose. See, when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God's great process was underway. God's great process of our justification. That's what he meant when he says in Isaiah 53, 11, my righteous servant justify many. So shall my righteous servant justify many. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. What was God's great process for our justification? 
It's described for us. He shall bear their iniquities. See, put it all together now, Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So, isn't that marvelous? Now, that's God's great process for our justification. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Two things happened, two great changes. He made him to be sin for us. He knew no sin. He was sinless. And he made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We were not righteous, but we were made the righteousness of God in him. He was not sinful. He was sinless. He had no sin, who knew no sin, but he made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He went down to the depths of sin so that we could come out of the depths of sin. That's the process. And that's the process. That was God's great process for our justification. And there was a cost for that. That was a cost. The process had a cost. There was the cost. What was the cost? He shall bear their iniquities, or he hath made him to be sin for us. That was a cost for him. He hath made him to be sin for us. He shall bear their iniquities. That cost was that the cost here is what we've been reading about in the first two verses of Psalm 22, where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The cost was God could not look on sin. God turned away from him. God did forsake him. God did not answer him. God was far from him. Great cost. That's the cost that was paid. He was forsaken by God. Therefore, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he knows personally, firsthand, from his own experience, what it means to cry out to God and not be heard. And because he knows that, or what he experienced on the cross, because he knows that, he is resolved. He is determined that when any person at any time, anywhere, should cry out to him, that he will answer that person. He will answer that person. That's what he has resolved. So that's why it says in Psalm 22, 24, when he cried unto him, he heard when the afflicted, when an afflicted person cries to him, he hears. And that's the power behind verse 7, where it says in Exodus 3, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. See, the cross so impacted the Lord Jesus Christ that it put him on a course of searching and he's searching today. It says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Because of his experience on the cross, his eyes and his ears are always in a certain position. And they're described for us in Psalm 34, 15, where it says the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. See, his eyes are always looking, they're always open. His ears are always listening, always listening. And when it speaks of the righteous, 
That's not referring to inherent righteousness. We're sinners. We're sinful. It's referring to imputed righteousness. In other words, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be made righteous. My righteous servant justify many. And so that's why we have in 1 Corinthians 1.30 where it says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's our righteousness. When we read a verse now, like Jeremiah 29, 13, where it says, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart, it means that if anyone seeks the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart, he's gonna find him. Why? Because he's looking for that person because he's seeking those who are seeking him. He is searching for those who are searching for him. That's what it means. Now, in verse 8, chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, we read in there, in verse 8, I am come down to deliver them. And we see how he literally came down to deliver from our sin. And as he said in John 3, 13 through 16, he says, No man hath ascended up, to heaven that he might, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Doesn't that remind you of what he says here in Exodus 3, 8, I am come down to deliver. So he says, he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And then he says the purpose for why he came in John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up? And we know that that was all about. That was the time when the sin of the Jewish people, complaining, murmuring, and God had sent a judgment of the fiery serpents with venomous poison, and they were biting the people, and they were dying, and God said, I'll give you the remedy. He says, you go take some brass, you make a brass serpent, and he says, you put it on a pole, you lift it up, and whoever looks at that pole, at that serpent on the pole, he'll be healed. He'll be healed from the venom that's already in him. He'll be healed from the venom that's in him that's already starting to kill him. And he says, do you see the analogy he was saying, the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Moses lifted up that? Okay, what's the analogy? You've, we've all been bitten with the snake of sin. The venom of sin is already killing us inside of us. There is no other remedy but God's remedy. And God's remedy is to make a brass serpent, and he says, and lift it up. And so as the cross was lifted up, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, and the cross was lifted up, and what are they looking at? They're looking at a serpent. The serpent is what bit them. The serpent represents sin. God hath made him to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, so we can be healed from our sin, so the people could be healed from their venom. He says, same way. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, no other way, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he says, that whosoever believeth in him, believeth what? Believeth that that person on the cross was God who became a man and who was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he was the righteous servant that justified many by bearing their iniquities. So that whosoever believeth in him, believeth in him, should not perish but have eternal life. The remedy for the poison of sin. And then he explains the motivation for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the whole point there. And that's where we get to Exodus 3.8, when he describes the goal to have eternal life. He said here, to have eternal life. And he says, to bring them up out of that land, the Jewish people, unto a good land. That's what he said. He says he wants to bring them up out of the land of their oppression there in, in Egypt unto a good land. And what does he want to do with us? In John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So what do we see in these verses? We see that while he's looking at his disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ is repeating what he said to Moses. And he was telling the disciples essentially the same thing he was telling to Moses. Why is he? Because he's the same. He's the same yesterday and Moses' day. He's the same today. He's the same forever. And so as he explained why he came down from heaven, it was to rescue from their sin and the sin that cursed the earth and to bring them up to himself, to heaven. And so when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, he was saying the same thing that he was saying in Exodus 3.8 when he says to bring them up out of that land unto a good land. So what we learn here is that he came down because his heart made him determined to deliver them. See, in verse 8, what we have here is that God described to Moses the good land that he was going to bring him up to. It's a good land for the Jewish people. He said it's a good land. He's going to bring him to a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the new land that God described. It was very, very different from the land of Egypt, the land that they knew. That new land was all that Egypt was not to them. It was Egypt was a land that the Jewish people did not have, but they longed for a land which they could have in Egypt. That new land was described as a good land. Egypt was not a good land. It was a bad land for them. Why? Because, well, first of all, it didn't belong to the Jews. And second of all, it was a bad land because it was corrupted by all those Egyptian gods, those gods that God hated. And the new land was described as a large land. And the part of Egypt where they lived in, on the land of Goshen, it was large when there were only 75 people. But now they had grown to 3 million people, and so that land had become small. And they were crowded, and they were hemmed in. And the land was described that he was going to bring them to as a land flowing with milk and honey. Flowing all the time. Flowing with milk and honey. In Egypt, there was not an all-the-time flowing, steady flow of food. Sometimes the Nile... What would happen with the Nile is that it would flood and then it would recede. It would flood and recede and that would be good because then there would be good crops in Egypt. But other times there would be too much flooding and then there wouldn't be good crops. Or other times there would be a drought as there was in Joseph's day when there were seven years of famine. So food was not predictable in Egypt and God promised to bring the Jews into a land that flowed with milk and honey. And as believers, we want to be in a world, in a place that's not corrupted by sin. And like Israel, we also long for where God is, a good land, a large land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when we read 
here in verse 9. It's very, very important, very, very important verse. Because what it says here in verse 9, he says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. So once again, God's talking about seeing and hearing, seeing and hearing, the eyes and the ears. And he says, I've seen what the oppression of the, and I heard their cry. But this is really a statement. You ask the question, why is this here? Well, we're going to find out as we come in verse 10, the next verse, when God says, Come, come now, therefore, and I'll send thee unto to Pharaoh. So what's happening here? Well, this is a statement that's meant to engage Moses. This is a statement meant to engage Moses because, see, in verse 10, when he's going to say, come now, therefore, and I'll send you. And so he tells him in verse 9 what he's experiencing. God says, I hear their cry. I see. Now, come now, therefore, and I'm going to send you. So why is this so important? Because when we do what it says in John 1:12, which is this, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, or the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior, then we become one of what's called here the sons of God. He says, gave you the power to become. We become the sons of God. And what it means to be the sons of God? Well, it means this. And you might want to turn because you see here in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, we read this. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples said, Ye have heard that it hath been said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And here's the phrase that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. See, when we love what God loves, when we hate what God hates, when we are hurt by what hurts God, when we search for what God searches, when we do what God does, then we are the children, I didn't say sons, but children of the Father. See, he says that ye may be the children of your Father. And there is a difference between being a son of God and from being a child of God. See, being a son has no measure to it. In other words, we either are or are not a son of God. And we're told that to receive him, then we have the power to become the son of God. We either have it or we don't have it. We either have received the Lord Jesus Christ or we have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, which either makes us a son or we're not a son. See, that's, there's no measure to it. But being a child of God is different. Being a child of God is by measure. We can be more a child of God, or less a child of God. That depends on us. And that's why he says, do like God does, that ye may be the children of your Father. In other words, love what God loves to the measure that you love what God loves, to the measure that you hate what God hates, to the measure that you are hurt by what hurts God, to the measure that you, you search for what God searches for, to the measure that you do what God does, then to that measure you are a child of God. See, it is by measure. 
So he said to Moses, Behold, look at this, Moses, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I've also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. So Moses might say, So, so, well, See, verse 9 is the pre-engagement step here, and that's why it's so important, because Moses, God is saying to Moses, when he comes to verse 10, he's going to say, so engage, Moses, engage. In other words, God's saying, I saw the oppression, you need to see it. Engage, Moses. I heard their cry, you need to hear it. Engage, Moses. Now, that's for us. That's for us. Why? Because He's saying to Moses that you might be the child of God. So he says, God says to us also, I want you to be children of your father. And God sees today the oppression of the sin that torments the lost. And he says, see it to us as Christians. See it, Christian. And he says, we need to engage and see it also. We need to see it also and engage. God sees the horrors that await the lost in hell. And we need to see the horrors that uh, await the lost in hell so that we can engage, engage, Christian. God hears the cries of the lost for help. And we need to hear the cries of the lost for help so that we can engage, engage, Christian. What good is a car if the engine runs great but it won't engage through the transmission? You know, today I took my Honda, my, my 2006 Honda Element, in to get get it worked on. Why? Because what happens, actually it happens with both my cars, this 1987 Mercedes, and so I'll step on the gas and it doesn't engage. It kind of hesitates. And the Honda was doing that also. So I took the Honda to Tipton Honda and I said, here, you got to make it so that when the engine goes, that the transmission makes the car engage. You got to work on it. So they worked on the transmission. Seems to be working okay. But anyway, same thing with the 1987 Mercedes. I take the car up to Escondido, to France. I said, you need somebody, at least it has a German name, to work on Mercedes. So anyways, France. But I said, France. I said, make the car engage. Make the car engage. Because this is what God is doing there. He said, look, what good is a motor that can run perfectly if it doesn't engage the transmission? And so God is saying, God is the motor. God is the motor, and verse 9 is showing you the revs of the motor. It's the motor that's going, and God is saying, the motor is seeing the oppression. The motor is hearing the cries. The motor is, Moses, you are the transmission. Engage, Moses. Get with the motor. Sink with the motor. And so, and what are the tires? The tires are Moses' shoes. Go! They're into Egypt now, see? That's what's going on here. It's my friend, Russ Plowman. So today, he goes and visits a 90-year-old Jewish man who had had just had open-heart surgery. I don't know how you do open-heart surgery on a 90-year-old man. And he's going there to bring him the good news, to bring him the life message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Russ doing this? Because Russ has engaged. He is engaged with the heart of God. The heart of God, the motor there, it's turning. It's seeing this man doesn't have much time to live. It's seeing the oppression of sin against him. It's hearing the cries. And now Russ, he has engaged with his transmission and his feet went to that hospital there to go visit that man. And so God is taking in verse 9, and he's saying, look, the motor's running. I want the transmission to be ready because it comes now in verse 10 where it says, come, he says, verse 10, come now, therefore. That's God shifting, using the gear shift there to engage 
the transmission to get the car rolling there. So Moses needs to engage. And so that's why telling him verse nine here to see how it's all going. I mean, it's a rough thing for God. Where does God go? God doesn't have a Tipton Honda. God doesn't service. God doesn't have a France. And so he relies on us, service our own. <laughs> Transmissions engage with God. That's the key here. And that's why he goes and tells them all these things again in verse nine, because God is saying to Moses, Moses, the motor, get with the motor. The motor is hearing the cries of the children of Israel. It's come unto me. The motor is seeing the oppression of the Egyptians on them. It's in my eyes. It's in my ears. Moses, it needs to be in your eyes. It needs to be in your ears. Engage, Moses. Put your transmission into the gear and engage with the motor. And then the wheels will turn and you'll go to Egypt to re- to deliver my people. See, that's what's going on here. And and we're going to, we run out of time, so we're going to have to continue this in verse 10 in our next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. And we pray, Lord, that, that uh, we might also be fully engaged with you in your great heart to save the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 